and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 153, Great Heights, Impossible Peace. Last time, the various SS divisions had helped finish pushing the BEF off of mainland Europe, but also had massacred some 100 men of the 2nd Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Thus far, seen from a certain light, the SS was fulfilling its duties, helping secure Europe for the Third Reich and removing anyone, friend or foe, that would stand up to the Reichfuhrer SS Himmler's ever-growing military and political organization. Now that the battles in Flanders were over, the Wehrmacht and SS units were allowed to stand down for some much-needed rest. After all, they had been fighting for 20 days. The men were exhausted. Discipline had become lax, and the equipment needed overhauling or replacing. The Liebstandata was told to lose their now gypsy-like appearance and smarten up, while Eck ordered that his men of the Totenkopf were not to loot anymore, as the eyes of the Wehrmacht was upon them. This was after Eck's immediate supervisor, as well as Himmler himself, had given him a dressing down. By now, General Hopner himself had heard whispers of the La Paradis massacre and ordered a full investigation, but the SS officers and Himmler banded together to cover up the details. Even worse for the local SS commanders, though it should not have been, Himmler showed up in northern France and met with Eck. The dressing down continued, though there were no records kept of the conversation. And while it's probably true that they discussed La Paradis and the killings of the civilians before that, Himmler was mostly concerned with the loss of equipment and the 300 officers killed during the fighting. Those losses would have to be made good by pulling men from the two officer training schools, although their training was not yet complete. It also bothered Himmler that Eck kept up his independent streak, understandable against the army, but not from Himmler himself. Hence, the Reich Führer SS made the new appointments of officers instead of Eck, and his new chief of staff would be a Himmler man. But Eck made sure that this guy only saw what Eck wanted him to see. Battles within battles. The Totenkopf was ordered to Boulogne in northern France to a reserve position, but would see action again on June 14th. As for Hussar's SSV division, that and Dietrich's Liebstandarte were ordered to move out, to hit the French now at their new defensive positions along the Somme and Isle River. The SS went first, the Lieb followed behind it in support. Overall, as things now stood, Germany had 104 divisions coming up against the 60 or so of the French. On June 5th, Panzer Group Kleist attacked the French, who were now on the south bank of the River Somme. The artillery of the SSV was providing cover fire. Between the Panzers and the SS artillery, the former were able to break through on the next day, June 6th. The tanks poured over, the SSV right behind them. But any sense of exhilaration stopped on June 7th, when both groups ran into the main French line along the river Avre. The fighting was to continue on June 8th, 
But that morning, General von Bock ordered a halt, and for the SSV to switch to a defensive position. Bock began to worry that Kleist panzers and the SS artillery were getting bogged down when this phase of the war should have been about capturing miles of French territory while pushing the enemy back. But this was not happening. No, the SS guns were told to hold while the panzers would be sent elsewhere to an area which was having more success. The SS artillery would keep the French in front of them honest and immobile. That is what Bach was counting on. By June 9th, the Germans had created a hole in the Anvas area, about 120 miles due east of Paris. So the Defuhrer Regiment was ordered to join the battle there, as was the Liebstandarte. A few days later, so was the Totenkopf. The combined power of the SS units with Kleist Panzers were now making the kind of success von Bock wanted by reaching the Marne and the Seine. With the armed men of the Third Reich scoring such successes, the French government began to crack. On June 10th, the French government moved to Bordeaux, near the country's west coast, more than halfway down to the Spanish border. On the 12th, the City of Lights itself was declared open. Two days after that, the Germans entered Paris. Whatever fight most of the French forces still had in them, it, too, began to crumble with this news. But they still had not given in. It was now up to the German forces to drive as far west as they could to bring this about. And here the mechanized units of the SS would get the chance to show the Wehrmacht what they could do. The war in the West became a race against time, between the opposing sides, and against each other's potential, as in who was more determined. The French had to regroup. The Germans had to make this impossible. The answer for both was control of land. The more of it, the more opportunities for maneuver. The less of it, the more restrictive became one's moves, which would mean less territory. This would become a cycle that would either free up the French to take the offensive or allow the Germans to encircle the French forces though they were retreating west and to the south. With Berlin giving the order to advance, the German infantry marched west in central France, while the motorized units were let go and told to dash their way to victory. Specifically, the Liebstandata's motorcycle company, led by Kurt Meyer, pushed off to the south in what would be later compared to hunting. He would write, The flanks had become unimportant. We moved down the road like a fire-spitting dragon, firing only conducted from moving vehicles. While the Liebes motorcycles dashed and clashed with the ever-retreating French units, the Pulitzer division, on foot, followed behind, pulling their wagons and artillery pieces with horses. The 4th SS Pulitzer Panzer Grenadier Division, former policemen with some military training, which had only been militarized because of Himmler's urging, had already seen action in France and was about to see more. Back on June 9th, the 26th Infantry Division had been battling the enemy along the Ardennes Canal, but only had dead 
and wounded to show for it. But then the Politsee, led by Obergruppenführer Karl Pfeffer Wildenbruck, was ordered to assist. The 1st Politsee Infantry Regiment made it across the canal and entered the wooded, higher ground nearby. But they were soon facing one French counterattack after another. But with the canal breached, the 2nd Regiment then crossed over and took the nearby town, threatening to cut off the French from going any further west. Thus the canal, the town, and the area was taken by the Pulitzi. These three former police regiments then got a taste of hand-to-hand combat on June 14th at Les Islets. Here, their training and experience at mixing it up with combative youths came in handy. Again, the Pulitzi carried the day. But after that, they would be pulled back. Now their job was to follow in the wake of their motorized brethren and mop up. As for the Maginot Line, which, with their allies, was to prevent this very kind of collapse, the Germans attacked it directly, in earnest, on June 14th, in the form of Army Group C. Soon, two breaches were made, and that, combined with the general retreat of the French, the men of Maginot were soon leaving the area to hook up with the main French army in the southwest part of the country. The SSV and other units were told to stop this from happening. Yet as morale was sky-high within the German camp, certainly among the SS units, the same could not be said for the defending French. The SSV approached town after town. The French before them mostly gave up, happy enough that their part of the war was over. The SSV went from active combat to prisoner control as more and more surrendered. Soon, some 30,000 enemy soldiers were in their hands. The Germans to the right of the SSV met with even less resistance, as the defendant units still in the fight were heading to the southwest. Yet the fast-paced chase and their prisoner watching got in the way of one of the main reasons for joining the SS, at least according to Eck. As French troops and civilians ran before the Germans, they left everything behind. But as they continued to flee, orders were to stay on them. So the time to gather booty practically disappeared overnight. Eck knew his men were unhappy, but it was the beginning of the end of the war in the West and everyone had to do their part, or Hitler himself may get involved. And nobody wanted that. The one time that the Toltenkopf infantry got to fight in this great chase was when they came upon a unit of French-Moroccan troops who refused to surrender at first. Supposedly there were 30 prisoners by the time they surrendered, but when it came time to return to Germany, none of those prisoners were alive to turn over to the authorities. In truth, the Third Reich as a whole, and certainly the regular army and the SS, were indoctrinated with the idea that blacks were inferior and, in some ways, less than fully human. So, if they were shot out of hand during war, there could be no surprise. In fact, there were several mass killings of Moroccans by the Wehrmacht as well, 
in the last few days of the War of the West. No one really minded, except that some of the SS units had already killed white, French, and British troops a few weeks back. That was not the kind of thing Berlin needed getting out. The move west by motorized and infantry units continued. The Liebstandarte reached Clermont-Ferrand, 50 miles south by southeast of Paris, on June 20th. By then, the French government was in talks with the Germans. Still, the push was ordered to continue, as this may be only a French ruse, besides which Hitler still thought it feasible to attack Russia before the year was out. So, wanting a wider front, the Lieb was told to go to the southeast, towards saint Antienne. They moved out, but just north of their objective, the Lieb reached a small town that had guarding it tanks from the Great War. Not expecting much of a fight, a soldier brought forward a 3.7-centimeter anti-tank gun. As the old beast began bringing its turret around, the soldier fired, but the anti-tank shell simply bounced off the relic, as did the second, all the while its barrel was centering on the German soldier, not 20 meters away. About to fire a third time, the tank discharged. The anti-tank unit suffered a direct hit. The 10th Company commander, who survived the blast, ordered the 15-centimeter guns forward. Fortunately for the Germans, the World War I Eros tank turret was now jammed, so it retreated back down the village of the main street, the way it had come. With Clermont-Ferrand and Saint-Antienne taken, the latter was accomplished by June 25th. This marked the farthest the Germans had gone into France. And there, at the fore, was the Liebstandarte, a high point for Germany, but also for Himmler's SS. That same day, Dietrich received word, which had been traveling up and down France, that the armistice had gone into effect. The war against the hated, decadent, more left-leaning French was over. Yet four days before the armistice was made official, Hitler already knew that he wanted a divided France. The northern and western half along the coast was to be occupied, while the southern zone was to be administered by a puppet French government. Hence, Panzer Group Kleist was ordered towards Bordeaux, and with it, the SSV and Totenkopf divisions. As the Germans sailed through one city after another, there was no fighting at this point. The citizens were shocked by the speed and might of the Germans. Cries of Mon Dieu, les Allemands could be heard, as well as the captured, now well-known photograph of a Frenchman with all the angst, shock, fear, and dismay clearly showing on his face. On June 27th, reaching the Spanish border, the Germans were well met by the men of Franco and hailed as victors. For the next few days, the men of the Wehrmacht and SS divisions swam in the Atlantic. All cares gone, a rest well earned, all rivalry forgotten, for the moment. As the combined might of Britain, France, and Belgium had been defeated, it was time for lengthy speeches and medals to be handed out. The SS units, as was the Wehrmacht, received 
their fair share. Nay, the Wehrmacht officers would claim the former had received more than their fair share. But in victory, grudges lose their edge. But there was still the matter of the atrocities. To be sure, the Slavs and Jews of Poland were treated inhumanely, but that was deemed right by genetics and God, respectively. As for the murders in the West, this showed that the rules of war laid down by the Hague and Geneva Conventions were, at times, going to be ignored. Overall, the Wehrmacht had been more honorable, but not perfect. Still, they would find that during the war, and more importantly, after the war, their connection to Hitler and his SS would taint their reputation as well. In the end, it came down to leadership. It always does. Hitler and Himmler were giving their respective armed forces certain messages, and those trickled down through the ranks. Mercy was for the weak. With the armistice a done deal, second-tier infantry units were put along the west coast. The SSV was ordered to the Netherlands to watch over the disarmament of the Dutch, while the Totenkopf were moved to different parts of France, now to be an occupation force. But it was the Liebstandarte that was given a gift beyond measure. It would parade through the streets of Paris under the eyes of de Fuhrer himself, but then the former architect, painter, and corporal decided on a more subdued tour of the city. So the crestfallen division was sent to the Alsatian city of Metz. As the various units reorganized themselves and moved out, which took time with the roads being congested with French civilians and German soldiers, there were rumors of peace. After all, how could the British now possibly go on alone? As for the Americans, yes, they had made a stink, but hadn't actually entered the war, and it would seemed would not. As the Third Reich enjoyed what seemed to be its zenith, perhaps the fighting was over after all. Epilogue. If I may, here's sections of a speech that Hitler gave in the Reichstag on July 19, 1940. At the time, this can easily be argued that the man was at the height of his powers. And at first, he is talking about the start of the war. I must, in this context, refer to my own person. No other statesman could have afforded to propose a solution to the German nation in the way I did. It comprised merely the return of Danzig, that is to say, an ancient, purely German city. If Mr. Churchill or any other warmongers had but a fraction of the sense of responsibility I felt towards Europe, they could not have played so perfidious a game, for it need be ascribed solely to these vested interests of war, both within Europe and beyond, that Poland rejected the proposals which neither compromised its existence nor its honor, and instead resorted to terror and arms. The responsible elements in England and France smelt a rat, seeing my appeal as a dangerous assault on their lucrative profiteering in the war. 
Thus they hurriedly and eagerly declared that any thought of an understanding was a waste of time. Yes, that this would even have to be regarded as a crime. The war had to be pursued in the name of culture, humanity, good fortune, progress, civilization, and, good God, even in the name of sacred religion, and in subservience to this end, even Negroes and Bushmen had to be mobilized. And then, of course, victory would come about of its own accord, so to speak. It would be within grasp. One need only reach out for it, so they say. I was very well aware of all this myself, and indeed had known it for some time, and it was only because of this that I had laid before the world my appeal for peace. When Marshal Pétain offered Francis lying down of arms, he was not laying down a weapon he still held. Rather, he merely put an end to a situation completely untenable in the eyes of every soldier. Only the bloody dilettantism of a Mr. Churchill either fails to comprehend as much or lies about it in spite of better knowledge. I immediately undertook, as soon as the German folk entrusted me with its leadership, to realize these oldest goals of National Socialist foreign policy in practical terms. It still saddens me today that, in spite of all my endeavors, I have not succeeded in obtaining this friendship with England, which I believe should have been a blessing for both peoples, and especially because I was not able to do so despite my persistent, sincere efforts. And when I now turn to speak to the future, my deputies, I do so not to boast or brag. This I can well leave up to others who are in greater need of it, as, for example, Mr. Churchill. What I want to do is to paint a picture of the present situation, bare of exaggeration, as it is and as I see it. When the British so-called statesman, assures us that their country emerges strengthened from every defeat and failure, then it surely is no arrogance when I inform them that we emerge at least equally strengthened from our successes. <laughs>